0: Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today is Zeke Levine. He's a musician, doctoral candidate, and translator from Yiddish of a book-length collection of stories by the radical Yiddish humorist Sam Lipson. For everything about Zeke, including his music, go to ZekeLevine.com and follow him on Instagram. And Zeke, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited to be here.
0: We're going to have some fun. We're going to talk a little bit about music, your music, and about Yiddish and about Sam Lipson. So before we talk about your passion for translating Yiddish and why you decided to work on a book-length collection of stories by Sam Lipson, tell us about your music and your doctoral candidacy.
1: Sure. So basically, since I was a little kid, I've been a musician. And around middle school, high school, I started playing the bass. Um, I went to the University of Texas at Austin as a double bass, jazz double bass major. And I worked in the city of Austin playing with all kinds of bands, jazz bands, funk bands, country bands. Um, And in my last semester at UT, I took a Yiddish class with Itzik Gottesman, who's somebody whose roots are in New York, but he ended up in Austin. Um, He's a fantastic teacher. And so I just kind of fell down this Yiddish rabbit hole Um, (laughs) and once I was done in Austin, I moved back to New Jersey, where, where I grew up, and was finding that, you know, I wasn't, I had sort of lost a little bit of my passion for the kind of gigging musician lifestyle. So I pivoted toward some other passions, which it included at this point, Yiddish, studying history, studying, you know, listening to records, things like that. And that took me down the path both of doing Yiddish scholarship. So I spent a year um, after that as a as a fellow at the Yiddish Book Center, an education fellow, and I'll talk a little bit about that because that's part of my Sam Lipson journey, and then was applying to graduate programs in musicology, which kind of combined my passion for music, the fact that I had had all these amazing musical experiences over the years, pairing that with, with my, my kind of newly invigorated love for research, for Yiddish, for scholarship, for you know thinking through ideas around music, and so I'm in my fourth year in a doctoral program, as you mentioned, at NYU. And my focus right now is Yiddish folk music and its relationship to the American folk revival. So Yiddish music in, in the American setting. I've also done some work um, about rock and roll recently wrote a paper about the Grateful Dead. So I'm a little all over the place, but my focus,
0: (laughs) the dissertation,
1: yeah, the dissertation that I'm writing, and by the way, nobody in the Grateful Dead spoke Yiddish. Um, There's one possible Yiddish reference in one of their songs, maybe, Um, but other than that, no Yiddish connection, but the focus um, of the dissertation is Yiddish folk music and American folk music.
0: I think you're probably the first to think about that connection, but it does make sense in a way. Mm Especially with the influence of Yiddish on American culture in films and in comedy and in other areas of American life. So that's interesting that you made that connection. How did you develop the idea for that connection? It's a connection to Yiddish folk music and American folk music.
1: So I got into this because I've always been something of a folk music lover, an American folk music lover, play guitar, sing folk songs with family and friends. And I started getting into, then when I was studying Yiddish, one of the sort of central pedagogical tools that many Yiddish teachers have is to teach songs. So we kind of listen to the song, we think about the cultural impact of that, of the of the song, and then we get into the language a little bit. And I started thinking about these connections with this idea of Yiddish folk song. And, you know, I, I just kind of hatched this idea. And, you know, other people have written about it, but at the time, you know, I hadn't done my research yet, but I started thinking, there must be a connection here. There must be a connection between all of these so-called Yiddish folk songs that were being sung and written in America and the American folk songs. And the more I get into this research, the more I find there is this very deep connection and both sort of informed each other. So one of the most concrete examples would be that Folkways Records, which was a major folk music label in the 1950s and 60s, the founder of that label was Moses Ash. And his father was Sholem Ash, who was a famous Yiddish, famous or infamous, depending on who you ask, Yiddish writer, really known for his plays. So already there, we start to see this kind of Yiddish connection. And on Folkways records, there are, you know, in addition to, you know, one of one of the stars of Folkways was uh, the American folk singer Leadbelly. But of course, there's there's records on there from people like Ruth Rubin, you know, singing Yiddish folk songs. So there are these connections that I'm finding. And the more I write the dissertation, the my research for it, the more I'm able to um, draw these connections and hopefully, you know, make them dialogue with each other a little bit.
0: Are you able to reach any of the people that were around at that time, or at least their offspring?
1: Yeah, I have, I have talked to people who, you know, are sort of generally in the scene. So you know what I'd I'd like to get into a little bit more of you know talking to some of the people at Folkways, for example. But I definitely talked to people who were involved both with Yiddish folk singing and with American folk singing in the nineteen fifties and the nineteen sixties. It's been really interesting to get some of their perspectives, and you know just getting these stories where I can. Um, you know, unfortunately, there are there are fewer people out there than than I'd like there to be. You know, it's one of the it's one of the sort of risks of doing this kind of historical work, which is in the past, but not so far in the past, is that, you know, there's some people out there who can tell me these stories firsthand. The rest, I kind of glean from the archive, from recordings, from things that I read.
0: Well, my only suggestion is if you reach any people who were there at the time or their offspring that can give you some insight, I would definitely record that with their permission so you have it as an oral archive as well as for your dissertation.
1: Absolutely right. And so I've done a little bit of that, but not as much as I would have liked to.
0: You mentioned you developed this passion for Yiddish. Where did it come along on that path to now translating Yiddish? Because that's a whole other thing. Some of us speak a word or two of Yiddish, know what it means, or you can pick up things. But you're going the extra step. You're actually translating. So how do you get so fluent or proficient in Yiddish that you can translate it into English or vice versa?
1: Right, absolutely. So. So I studied for two semesters at the University of Texas, studying Yiddish. Then that summer, the summer actually after I graduated from college, I did a seven-week intensive Yiddish program at the Yiddish Book Center. Um, and the Yiddish Book Center is going to keep coming up again and again in this journey. I've spent a lot of time there in the last few years. But a big part of the classes that I was taking there was, was translation, just in the sense that we're reading these Yiddish texts. And you know sometimes it takes hours even to just get through a couple sentences or a paragraph. But in order to really understand what's going on, you know, we had notebooks full of these translations. Um, So I started to gain proficiency that way, figuring out, because I, you know, I think one of the things you're getting at is that there's a difference between being able to kind of speak the language or maybe understand it. And then really get to this kind of word by word analysis, how you get into the mind of the, the writers in terms of style, in terms of rhythm and cadence. So all of that stuff just kind of developed slowly. I sort of learned the tools that I needed, the, the dictionaries that I would consult, the reference guides, the people who I'd ask when I would get stuck on things. So it really started there in those classes. And then as I went along, there there was this kind of, one, you know, one of the big things was there, was there were texts which other people didn't know, you know, texts in Yiddish, which I could decipher, which other people couldn't read. And so it almost started um, organically that way, just saying, you know, I'll, I'll translate this little bit of text so that you, somebody who's interested in Yiddish, but doesn't necessarily speak or read the language can get a sense of what's going on. And the Yiddish Book Center and other organizations have these sort of major translation initiatives. And so I was able to over time kind of fit the sort of smaller scale work that I was doing into some of those larger initiatives and ultimately get to this point where I now have, you know, 150 pages or so of Translated Sam Lipson texts, which
0: we're going to get into in just a moment. But one Absolutely. last question about the translation work yeah. that you do: Do you rely once you do- once you start to translate and you have several pages, are you able to go to someone else, either at the Yiddish Book Center or elsewhere, to verify what you've translated so you know you've got it accurately?
1: Yeah, and so that's that's one of the big challenges because you can get you know, even just misunderstanding one word can send you down a completely different path than, than, you know, is the author's intention. And so, yeah, there's plenty of people who I'll ask about questions, questions like that, you know, few people who I would consider, you know, close friends and colleagues will read whole pages of these things, but definitely for, you know, especially specific kind of cultural questions. So sometimes you'll get a word and it's, um, It's not just that you can't translate the meaning, it's that it means something very culturally specific. So, you know, words and phrases, i you know, I definitely have, there there are great networks of Yiddish translators to kind of work some of that stuff out. And then more and more people, you know, willing to read pages and chapters of of, of these texts.
0: One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is you're relatively young, and yet you have this passion for a language that has been around for a long time. So, that's mm-hmm. that's part of your intriguing appeal to me. Now, who, uh-huh. uh, there's another reason too, which we'll talk about at the, towards the end, but who was sure. who was Sam Lipson and why did you decide to translate some of his writings?
1: Yeah. So, Sam Lipson is somebody who, um, you know, before I get into his biographical sketch, I'll sort of, you know, recount that fateful day when I became introduced to his work. When I was a fellow at the Yiddish Book Center, I... I happened upon this little yellow songbook. And, um, you know, for your listeners, I'm going to try to guess the dimensions. It was maybe four inches by six inches or something, you know, definitely pocket size. And it was called Zingen Mir Fasholem. And I saw that means we sing for peace. And I saw that it was written in 1965. And I said, um, you know, as, as I mentioned before, you know, I listen to the Grateful Dead and all that kind of stuff. So I said, okay, great. We have Yiddish hippies put together this book, right? (laughs) And um, I was so excited for that because, you know, I'd never heard of Yiddish hippies and, you know, I haven't heard of too many since, but I look in the back page, you know, it says compiled and some of the songs were composed by Sam Lipson. So I look at the back page and there's this picture of this well-dressed man in his seventies, you know, uh, unassuming guy, glasses, sort of a bow tie. And, and I, I was just thinking, wow, this, you know, I, I did not expect, I did not expect to see this face. And so over time, I just started, you know, who is this guy, Sam Lipson, who, um, you know, I came to find how he got to this point by 1965, right? We sing for peace really aligned with the kind of anti, you know, anti-war effort. So, okay. A little biographical sketch. Sam Lipson uh, was born in 1892, born in, Lipsk, Belarus, and came over to the United States. His uncle had come to the U.S. He came in 1909. And sort of slowly, he he worked in in the garment industry in the Lower East Side of New York, slowly made a name for himself as a writer. You know, the story that he tells is some people were waiting waiting around at at a rally, and he kind of got pushed up to the front of the stage. He started telling some jokes, some stories, some you know, some some rallying chance, and he really caught the attention of some publishers at the time who said, why don't you write for us? So he started writing columns mostly in sort of radical newspapers. So um, you know, think of publications like the Morgan Freiheit, which were, you know, aligned with, with the communist, sort of aligned with 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 the communist movement. And you know, just over, over time, he sort of made this name for himself as as a writer. And as I came to find out later, you know, he was always based in New York, but he lived for a time in Coney Island, then ended up moving to the to the Bronx, to the Coops, they called it. It was a sort of cooperative housing among garment workers. And he was, you know, very, uh, very proud to be, you know, among these people up in the Bronx. But I know that for a time, he got in a little bit of... Uh, sort of trouble with the law. He ended up in New Jersey for a little bit. He lived in Miami uh, or in Florida for, <laughs> for a while and spent time sort of touring across the country. So, you know, he has these roots in, in New York City and really over, over the course of the 20th century, he died in 1980. So during, during that, that time, uh, really traversed the whole country and um, had all, the, had all of these different experiences.
0: What struck you about some of his stories?
1: So first of all, it struck me about some of his stories is just that they were hilarious, that they were, you know, that they're, are these great punchlines. So he was sort of a master of, he was a master of, of, of punchlines. So he, you know, you get to the end of a paragraph and you understand that he's been setting up a joke, the entire paragraph, and then you get to this last sentence. And it's, it's funny, like, you know, it's, it's another difficult thing, of course, with translation and of course reading humor across time. You know, he referred to himself as a radical humorist. That was his own coinage. He he really proudly wore that 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 title. And, you know, it's not a, the humor doesn't always translate, but for Sam Lipson, I was struck that, you know, I'd be reading through his stuff and I would find myself laughing out loud. So, you know, that's a mark of you know, that's a mark of a really sort of timelessly funny person who all of these years later, you know, is making you know, making somebody laugh, and so I was struck by that. I was struck also by just the sheer volume of his work. So he published at least that that I know of. He published twenty eight volumes, and this included short stories, one act plays. He didn't really write full dramas, but one act plays, poems, songs. Um, he wrote obviously. You know, as I mentioned before, he was really funny, but he could also write really. Um, kind of poignantly about dramatic issues you know he he wrote about the difficulties of being you know being a worker in the united states being a worker in the world the great depression the war the holocaust mccarthyism you know he could he could take on these serious subjects and often you know often he did so in a sort of funny way, but when he, when he aimed to be serious, he did, he did so in a really deep way. So I was just so struck by from the 1920s to the 1970s, he continued to write and just this massive, massive, this massive corpus of all kinds of writing. So, and keep in mind that at the beginning of this, he was still working in the garment, garment factories. He didn't make much money. As far as I know, he didn't make too much money, especially in the early days, doing his writing. So, It was, you know, it was something of a passion project and still he was just writing and writing and writing. So there's just so much there. And that's, you know, also, you know, when I came around to selecting texts, the 20 or so texts, the stories that I was going to translate, it was a long process of going through so many of these different volumes, finding, you know, finding these really kind of juicy stories that I wanted to, to bring into English. But I was really just, you know, I've just been so struck by, how much is out there, and the longevity of his work, both sort of during his lifetime and, and, and afterwards.
0: So, you have to pick and choose what you're translating, and you're working on now a translation that will be available in 2023?
1: That, that is correct, yes.
0: And it's for a French publisher?
1: A French publisher of Yiddish texts called Farlag Publishing.
0: From what you're saying, and based on your research, would you say that Sam Lipson was a man of his time?
1: Oh, he was absolutely a man of his time. And he was, it's really interesting because he was definitely a man of his time in the sense that he could write, you know, he he was really writing in many cases for his neighbors, you know, in, in the coops. And then, you know, he traveled the country, people who, you know, it was kind of extended neighborhood, right? People who could sort of um, sympathize with his position. So he was certainly writing about events that were happening. He was writing about, you know, the people that he was writing using characters that were sort of based on the people that he knew, the things he was observing. And what's really interesting to me is, so the texts that I'm translating all come from the 1950s, uh, 1950s and 60s, because in 1946, there was an English, there's a collection of English translations of texts that he had written before that. And what's really interesting is after 1946 into the 50s, there's this turn from this kind of you know militant but hilarious working man to the Zadig you know the the old man right like he he wrote about what it's like to have kids and to be retired and to um you know he has this story about you know his kids and his grandkids love to watch television and he didn't really know what to do about the television and they take him to a baseball game and he wasn't really too familiar with baseball. So not only what was happening in the United States, what was happening in the world, but what was happening in his life and the people that he had surrounded himself with, what was happening in their lives as they grew older, as they, you know, as Yiddish kind of fades away, as the experience of Jewish Americans changes in the 1950s and the 1960s, you know, he's really writing very personally to, um, you know, not, not only these national and international events, but to these very intimate and personal experiences.
0: It sounds as if he, although he took a different path in later years, he was still prolific. He was still writing all the time.
1: Absolutely. And yeah, from in the 1950s and 60s, a little bit into the 70s, although he slowed down a little bit, um, but the 1950s and 60s, there, there's a lot out there. He, he was really, he was writing all the time. And of course, this is before computers,
0: word processors, <laughs> right. typewriters, yes, but a lot, I'm sure some of it was handwritten as well. So that's a lot of extra work that you have to do prior to the invention of word processing or computers.
1: Absolutely. And one of the really interesting things is that he, you know, again, a man of the people, he published his books, he, he was largely self-published. Now, first of all, that has some implications for the editing, right? I don't think he had an editor. So some, some, although not not many, um, you know, he was, I really do believe he was a great writer. There are moments where I say, you know, let me edit for you, Sam, right? Like in my translations, I go in and, you know, I can kind of see where an editor's touch might have benefited. But he published with the support of what he called the Sam Lipson Book Committee. And that was his neighbor's and that was also People from around the country basically gave a little money to the Sam Lipson Book Committee, and that helped him to publish you know that that offset the cost of publishing and distribution of the books. So it's really you know it's, it's an amazing it's an amazing thing the way that he was kind of rallying support for his texts and at the same time writing for these people who were interested in, you know they as I said, they would donate a little bit and you know then receive copies of the text, hopefully, you know, sort of see something of themselves in there. And as I came to learn, he actually, you know, he did these international book tours. So he would really go across the country. You know, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but, you know, family in Los Angeles. So he'd go from, he had his kind of network from New York, Florida, and Los Angeles, and kind of all points in between. Were you able to find any recorded interviews with him that
0: you could use for your research?
1: Yeah, so there was, there's one that I've been able to find conducted by a man named Paul Buell, who was a, who was a historian of the American left. And he was, you know, he he himself was a really, really fascinating guy because he learned, you know, he didn't grow up as a Yiddish speaker. He learned Yiddish so that he could conduct interviews with people who had, you know, had been part of the movement. And so he sits down with with Sam in the Bronx for about an hour. There's about an hour worth of material. And I've gotten a lot out of it. You know, it's interesting. Paul says at the beginning, "You know, do you want to do it in Yiddish?" And Sam, in his very, you know, very defiantly, although his English wasn't great, you know, he he said, "No, let's do the interview in English." It was very interesting. You know, that was that was his commitment at that time. I think it was 1979. So he was, um, you know, he was he was quite elderly at the time. But um, it's it's a really really fascinating um, interview because he tells all of these really great stories. And he, and he sort of mentions all of these different characters, which is great for me as a researcher because he mentions all these kind of names that I can go then research, okay, who were these other people who were sort of involved in the Sam Lipson orbit? And that hour of recording that I have has been you know, so immensely fruitful. I know that Brown University has a collection
0: of Sam Lipson books. Does the Yiddish Book Center also have a collection?
1: Yeah. So the copies of the books that I have all come from the Yiddish Book Center. I mean, they have, they have, if not all, at least you know, most. And that also tells you something, you know, the Yiddish Book Center, one of the really cool things about the Yiddish Book Center is the fact that they accept book donations from sort of anybody and everybody, Yiddish book donations from anybody and everybody. So the fact that when you go, you know, I spent as a fellow a lot of time in the vault down there, and you see that there are maybe 30 copies of at least of, you know, any given title from Sam Lipson, you know, that there were at least 30 people who, who were reading his stories. And that's, you know, that's really cool. Another cool thing, you know, at least there's like, you know, some Yiddish celebrity going on here, but he signed most of the copy. So it's really cool to find, you know, autographed editions of Sam Lipson, uh, Sam Lipson books, but yeah, no, there's a there's a lot at the Yiddish Book Center. That's where I found most of them. And again, there's, you know, there there's a lot which does tell you something about his readership. Once you finish your work on him, that other people will build
0: on that down the road, I'm sure. So I think it helps to keep in a way, I've always been jealous of people who are prolific in writing, especially books, because they, in essence, are immortal. So mm-hmm. do you think that Sam Lipson will live on? After your work and and as others follow your work into the future.
1: Well, that's my hope, and one of the things that I had to think a lot about was, I, I should I should of course mention that this translation project was made possible through a translation grant from the Yiddish Book Center. They have a um, they call it the Translation Fellowship. Um, it's basically it's it's support for translators of, of, of Yiddish. And of course, applying for that, you know, they say, "Why? Why should this, of all of the Yiddish texts, why should this be published?" Sounds like one of the four questions
0: (laughs) during Passover.
1: Yes. Yeah. And so I had this book different
0: from any others.
1: A book, exactly, (laughs) exactly that question. And so I had to think really hard about the question that you're asking. You know, what 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 will it mean to translate Sam Lipson's works, especially since, as I said, there was that volume already translated in 1946. And at the time that I was starting this project, it was 2018. I mean, there was this, you know, there was wide support for Bernie Sanders and this kind of, there was this sort of very palpable, very youthful engagement with the history of the American left. And as Paul Buell very um, astutely recognized in the 1970s, you know, Sam Lipson was a really important part of that. And so the fact also, you know, okay, so first of all, politically, right? So there's, you know, there are some resonances there. I mean, I think the things that he's writing about um, in terms of the condition of, of workers, in terms of civil rights, he wrote he wrote really um, passionately and prolifically about the civil rights movement. I mean, I think that that stuff all resonates. And then the fact that he does so, the the title, the English title of his 1946 collection is called In Spite of Tears so laughter in spite of tears and i think that's a really beautiful sentiment you know it's 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 cutting to these really deep really important issues but doing so in a funny way and so you know i saw him in the sort of long line of jewish comedians as well as as well as you know really engaged political writers and so i think that's where the resonance is i mean i think that there's this engagement with the type of politics that sam lipson was writing about and that people will find his texts to be not only politically and sort of ideologically engaging, but also, again, hilarious and um, you know fun, fun to read, fun to talk about.
0: Well, that's a great way to end it with one personal footnote. Sam Lipson was my grandfather. Zeke contacted my sister Karen about his project a few years ago, and we thought it was a great idea. And that was, as Paul Harvey once said, the rest of the story. My guest has been Zeke Levine, musician, doctoral candidate, and translator from Yiddish of a book-length collection of stories by the radical Yiddish humorist Sam Lipson. For everything about Zeke, including his music, go to ZekeLevine.com and you can follow him on Instagram. Zeke, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.